Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Pat Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Culture Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. Welcome to episode five of Breaking the Surface. And today we are going to do a deep dive into the question of guns and gun ownership and gun culture, uh, things that are certain not to evoke any kind of emotional response from (laughs) anyone who's listening. (laughs) Right. I'm going to set the table just a little bit by talking about my experience growing up. I grew up in a Mennonite community. And if people don't know, Mennonites are pacifists. So this was not a community where gun culture was even remotely close to being a thing. There were people who had guns who went hunting or they might've been farmers and they wanted to protect their crops from wild pigs or something. That's what my cousin does down in Alabama. I mean, not full time, he farms. And then, (laughs) yeah, he's actually got an AK to uh, shoot wild pigs down there. But I just didn't grow up in a culture where guns were a thing. And it wasn't until I was an adult And began to kind of, I moved out of my community, began to get a much broader circle of friends and began to engage more deeply just with the reality of living in the United States and our history and our current situation where I realized, wow, this is a really hot topic among people. I had zero emotional investment in the topic at all. And then came to discover that a lot of people really did. And for some, it seemed it was a political investment. It was a historical or constitutional investment. It was this idea that they're the last line of defense potentially between an overreaching fascist government and freedom. Uh, It could simply be a question of what do we acquiesce and give to the government in terms of their control of our lives. I'm 52 years old and I'm still having a hard time wrapping my mind around the emotional investment that surrounds this topic. So Both of you grew up differently than I did. Talk a bit about your history in this. Yeah, you talk about emotional investment, and I I think I would say I probably have become more emotionally invested in it, uh, seeing, I think, the need for some change regarding, I know we talk a lot about common sense gun laws, whatever that means, but seeing a need for some type of improvement in regulations or an increase in regulations while at the same time purchasing more guns myself. And so um, I actually wrote down because I can go so many different directions on this kind of where I land right now. So I think I'm a combination of a lot of things. I have a variety of guns, but I want to make it clear that an AR-15 is not one of them. Uh, I have a deer rifle, a 22, a shotgun and a handgun. And I do honestly think that I'll continue to add more guns to my collection. Uh, I hunt multiple times a year. I also shoot for fun and I do have some bit of peace by having them in the home. But I also, as I say that, I want to make it clear, we don't have kids in the house either. So we don't have anyone that would go snooping around and, and, um, becoming a, a, a statistic, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about. I don't necessarily obsess over my guns. And I don't think that implementing common sense gun laws are in any way an infringement on my rights. 
In fact, I would feel safer and more free if I knew that there were a few additional regulations in place for gun ownership. What comes to mind is every single time I sit in a movie theater, I kind of have like this mm. little feeling of what, you know, could someone come in and just mow everybody down because we've seen that happen before. Yeah. I don't believe that people should be able to own any type of gun they want simply because they think they could do a hell of a Patrick Swayze impression from Red Dawn. <laughs> I don't live under the guise that my gun ownership would have any impact on reducing the movements of a tyrannical government. Don't own body armor, night vision, radar, heavy artillery, jets, or even drones outfitted with missiles. I don't suspect I would be able to do much <laughs> against government entities that would seek to disarm me. I think Beth has all those. Yeah, yeah I'm good. Okay. We can, we'll come yeah, up we'll with a plan later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, however, in light of what seems like erratic behavior from fellow U.S. citizens, I do find some bit of comfort in having them for home protection. This isn't saying that I'm a wealth of tactical knowledge or my, that my house is a fortress, just that I do have some capability in protecting my family. But if I'm being honest, I actually lean more heavily on my dog as a tool for home defense than I do a gun. If my dog is barking, and he will, then I have time to look at my options, which would most likely mean exiting the situation. So that's kind of my granular take on gun ownership. I understand that there's people that would find the small number of guns that I own to be alarming in the sense that I'm not fully exercising my Second Amendment rights to the extent that I should be. But I also understand that some would look at me owning any guns to be silly. I could probably align with both of them and their thinking in some ways. What it boils down to for me is that I don't think more guns solve problems and in fact exacerbates them. I know that there's this group that would have you believe that if we all just stockpile weapons, we can kind of police ourselves and we would actually be safer. I don't believe that in any way. But I would also lean pretty heavily away from thinking that removing all guns is the fix either. Beth, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, that was really well thought out. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know if I would say I grew up around guns, but I do have the men and my family on my dad's side of the family were hunters. I have many memories as a child of going to my dad's, um, hunting camp in the fall to visit him or my uncles or my grandfather. And there'd be like rifles, you know, leaning against the cabin wall and the guys are all kind of hanging out and I never felt bothered by them. Um, I'm, I don't think I shot guns a lot growing up, but I may have held one, you know, once or twice or shot a BB gun. Um, I think how, so I never really just give it much thought. I think how I started to give it more thought as an adult, as a reporter. Um, so spending a lot of time, you know, starting to cover court cases in my twenties and which I still do now in my mid thirties, you know, have the last decade and a half, um, covered all kinds of, gun crimes, gun violence, um, murder, suicides, you know, just kind of the dark side of human nature, often involving weapons. Um, it sort of realigned my, um, perspective. I thought I started thinking of it really from a crime perspective. I still know a lot of people who hunt or who own guns for recreation or home protection. Um, and I think, you know, I just, we were talking a little bit before the show, I have a farm now in old mission with, uh, chickens and a fox keeps giving us a hard time. And my partner, I have like had that kind of conversation of like, maybe we're farmers now and maybe we need like a livestock <laughs> gun. Like I kind of get why people used to have guns around because this fox is driving us crazy. Um, so I, what I, I don't have a fundamental, uh, opposition to guns or owning weapons, particularly for utilitarian purposes. I think, um, having covered so much gun violence and some really like heart, heartbreaking, um, homicides and, and murder, suicide situations, um, as well as just cover, like listening to police radios of mass shootings in other cities, um, just to kind of see how the reporting side of that worked. It, 
it's, you know, it's really acquainted me with the dark side of human nature. And I think now the way that I see guns is really contextualized by who's holding them and by who's owning them. And so that goes to things like police violence and police brutality. It goes to the incredible amount of, um, domestic violence that I've seen. We just had a case in Traverse City in the last two weeks of a young man in his 20s who was stopped and had all kinds of weapons and parts for ghost guns, which are, you know, untraceable, unlicensed guns. And he was being investigated for stalking. And that's a situation that is all too common where because it's so easily accessible to get weapons, people who are erratic or have harmful intent have no real barriers to being able to to weapon themselves and to carry out whatever their motives are. So for me, I think when I talk about gun culture and the gun debate, what I'm really interested in is how do we account for the fact that humans are highly erratic (laughs) creatures who are very prone to volatile emotions, who are prone to violence, even without guns or weaponry, but are much more effective at being violent with guns and weaponry. So I just think not having a discussion about the fact that whether we're angry or drunk or betrayed or any human uh, state that we could be in that might make us want to kill someone is so easy to do in our country. And it, it's so hard to talk about, which is kind of why I wanted to have this podcast with you guys. Cause it's easier to talk about these things. I think with you too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also, um, the self-harm. So most people that are gun owners, they, they'll get, tell you the reason that they have guns is for personal protection. However, uh, they're also turning those guns on themselves. Uh, too many people are, I should say, are turning those guns on themselves or, you know, small children or relatives or whoever are able to find those guns and maybe they don't have the same good intentions as the actual gun owner themselves. I mean, how many mass shooters do we have where uh, they're like, oh, this person got the gun from a relative and then carried out this mass shooting. So it's a complex conversation, but yeah, there's, there's also a ton of suicides resulting from guns. Yeah. Guns do enable us to be efficient in acting out the desires of our heart in ways that other weapons don't. Take, for example, the question of suicide. The United States, as I understand it, is not necessarily more prone to people committing suicide than most other nations. We're well within the average range. We're just more efficient at it because we have more guns. And you're just more likely to succeed with something like that than you are with a lot of other different things. Same with violent crimes. We're not actually, as a nation, that far out of the norm globally in violent crimes, at least of comparable nations. And violent crimes have been dropping quite a while. I think for the last 15 years, violent crimes were dropping, except for a glitch of just one or two years. So we're not out of the norm there, but we are more efficient when we do decide to commit crimes because we're violent crimes because we're doing them with guns. Which I think leads to this discussion about mass shootings. And you cannot have a discussion about guns and not talk about mass shootings and the fact that we are so above and beyond what other, uh, I guess we could say like high income countries are in terms of mass shootings in, in their frequency, but also uh, just how, like you said, efficient people are there. You, you look at other countries and when there's a mass shooting, it's much more of an outlier than it is when, when they happen here. Like we, we talked about full disclosure when we were going to do this, conversation and have this one because we knew it was, you know, it's going to get people riled up and and give them something to think about. This is in the fabric of our country and people are very passionate about this topic, but we knew it was an evergreen topic Mm -hmm. because if we're going to bring it up after a mass shooting, 
Unfortunately, we live in a country where you just have to wait a week and there's I was going to say, shooting. we can bring it up every week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And that's definitely been a, a rough thing lately. You know, this topic, it's so interesting to me, um, you know, between the conversations that Anthony and I have had in the course of our friendship and our, you know, past podcasts and events and talking with you, Taylor, we've talked about all sorts of volatile, charged, emotional topics that people care about a lot. And even like a topic like abortion, I just cannot think of a topic like guns where people shut down so hard and have such hardline emotional responses to, especially, you know, especially, I guess I would say from a certain segment of the gun owning or gun advocacy population, where any sort of broachment of asking a question or what about this checks and balance, or could we have a conversation about this is just, no, (laughs) it's just so hard. And so to me, a little bit fear-based about, the possible intrusion on their rights or a loss of rights. And I want to understand it and respect it. I, again, I don't have any problems with gun ownership, but I I'm struggling to understand. And I guess I would give a lot of credit with air quotes around credit to the NRA for how successful they've been as an organization to completely control and dominate the dialogue in the country. But I'm curious what you guys think about why maybe in experiences or conversations you've had with other people, but why is this particular topic so hard to like have even a conversation about? No, that's what I asked you at the beginning. (laughs) You guys are supposed to be enlightening me. (laughs) 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 I don't know. I was thinking, I mean, it has to go back to the constitution, right? And the fact that this uh, is something that was there from the beginning in terms of this right that we have to bear arms. And I think that the, the group that is, most inclined to buy guns and enjoy guns and stockpile guns tend to be the group that I think uh, takes the constitution like in its purest form. I don't know if most seriously is the way I want to say that, but they're the ones that most often revert back to the constitution. Maximal reading perhaps. Do you think that that's a, an adherence to the fidelity of the constitution itself, like an upholding of the document and how important it is, or it's that the constitution bestows something upon them that they think that they want or need to protect, which is, it's not about protecting the constitution. It's about protecting this thing that I think the constitution gives me. Well, yeah, I was going to say related before you. Yeah, they may be connected. I would, I would think of it as uh, one thing a gun does is give you power. And when you have power, you tend to have freedom. Mm, mm-hmm. So in defense of this argument, I think the idea would be that we have been given that right so that we have the power to protect freedom from any encroaching force that would unconstitutionally seek to take that freedom away. And the old adage, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Okay. If, if the people who could potentially oppress you have guns, then you're going to need to have guns or you're most likely going to need to have guns in order to have the power to protect that freedom. So I I actually appreciate that argument. What I don't understand is how there is a lack of what I would call reasonable discussion about what does it look like then to exercise that freedom and have access to that power in a way that we as a culture agree, we want to minimize the potential bad implications of gun ownership because there are bad implications. I mean, the stats are, (laughs) you can't argue with them. And yet the principle I I think is that one of you probably won't have freedom if you don't retain some sort of power. And, And that's, I think what you're describing is that how do you have that discussion that says, okay, I get the principle and I, I can understand it in theory, but can we talk about 
a responsible use of the power that we've been given. We do that with every discussion of power with everything else in our lives. What does a responsible use of power look like? There's like an inherent catch 22 to that aspect of the constitution for me though, which is like, I think the way I see that the second amendment interpreted today is that, you know, if the government comes for me or we need to protect ourselves against government tyranny, we're able to be armed as individuals or families or communities or whatever, to sort of fight tyranny. So the constitution though, is this document that's upholding and is the basis of the American government. Keep going. I know where you're headed. <laughs> and so then we have within this document, how to protect yourself from the American government, which in many cases might be sedition, you know, or treason. So it's a little bit, I, it's weird to me to be like, I love this American document that gives me the right to own guns so that I can fight the American government. It's a, it's a little bit of a weird catch 22. I don't know if that's, like what the full intent of what the constitution was, but it's a sort of weird line to walk for me. Almost like there's a built in assumption, right? The government will not maintain (laughs) its credibility. Well, it was written by groups of people that were coming from a place where they felt oppressed. And Mm so I, I don't so much believe in the fact that there was this group of people, which was the government and was like, Hey, you know, just feel free. Like if we're ever acting up, you know, as your overlords, (laughs) just, just shoot us. I don't, I don't believe that Yet you can read into it and say, yeah, there was this group of guys that drafted up this document just in case the government, you know, oversteps in the future. And that thinking has led to just the opportunity for a ton of boiling points. And we've seen that more so than ever in my life in 2020 where I was like, whoa, what is going on with the insurrection at the Capitol? And that wasn't even with guns. And then you're hearing some of the the things that are coming out about how there were plans to um, smuggle guns into Washington, D.C. and and go much further than what they even did. But um, it's interesting. I, I just personally, as a gun owner and someone that likes owning guns, I very rarely think about the fact that I'm going to be able to stop some tyrannical government as much as I think, well, maybe I can protect myself from a fellow citizen. And again, I'm not someone that is carrying a gun when I, when I go out and about just thinking in my immediate vicinity or my home, if it came down to that, then I guess I have that option, but I'm also ready to admit that like, I'm not totally suited for that either. I haven't been properly trained in in terms of tactics and stuff like that. So I guess I'm, I'm I'm not buying all these arguments about the importance of upholding the second amendment without being able to have some type of nuance and conversation. Yeah. And I think there's like, I guess this is what I'm getting to. It's like some of the resistance to like have any sort of like reasonable conversation sometimes about this topic. I, I question like how much of it is based in like a strong legal foundation. So like an an example would be a lot of people who are strong gun advocates also participate in like militias. Like that's a a growing popular trend. And I I was listening to an NPR story recently and I was very surprised actually as a reporter, I didn't know this to learn that militias are illegal. Like I just assumed these were, you know, you can get together with your buddies on the weekend and they're sort of like in an informal context. Yes, you can hang out and shoot and theoretically talk about, I guess, what you might do if something were to happen. But aside from enrolling in the National Guard, which is a legal form of an American militia, um, military uh, organizations, private paramilitary activity is prohibited in all 50 states. 
So you cannot have an organized private militia in the country, which is, I think, misunderstood. Not even yes. to kidnap the governor? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Probably for that reason, that the government doesn't probably have a vested interest in a lot of people getting really well organized and having a lot of weapons and then sort of operating as their own military unit apart from the actual federal government. It makes sense to me. I'm fine with that. I wonder if... Part of what gets confusing is if there's an idea that we need to have the a proper amount of power to protect our freedom. I think the idea is that we should love freedom so much that we'd be willing to use power to keep it. But what happens if we fall in love with the power? I wonder if that's where part of this is going sideways is that eventually it isn't the freedom that is the thing that motivates us. It's the power that motivates us. And we've had many podcasts talking about or generally the power is the motivator. It's not yeah. a healthy outcome. And so I'm, I'm going to double down on that. <laughs> I wonder how much sometimes we crave power. And I mean this in all kinds of areas of life. Guns would just be one thing because we are fearful of something. Like we want to be able to control the situation around us because we're afraid that if we can't, something's going to arise. That's either bad for us or bad for the, for the community. I wonder if there's something to be said that gun culture is a result in some ways of fear. It's a fear-driven culture. Mm -hmm. And I would be the first to argue there are legitimate and illegitimate fears. So that in itself does not, is not intended to be some kind of damning indictment against it. But I've heard a lot of, of discussion this last year when it comes to COVID stuff. Are you living in fear? Are you doing responses and planning the way you live because of fear? But isn't that a fair question to ask? about gun culture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you have to ask your question again, but here's, here's one thing that's become really clear to me in the last year is that it's not only fear, but it's like fear of fear. It's like preemptive fear. So you're like, you know, I really can't budge on, on this right now because I might be scared down the line. Mm. And what I mean by that is that there's not always reasons for people to be fearful yet. They're coming up with reasons mm. To be fearful. Nothing to fear the, but fear yes, itself. <laughs> yeah. It's not the, the reasons aren't there yet. And I understand everybody has kind of a different line. What someone finds tyrannical might be different than what I find tyrannical. And we've we've watched that play out. But I think that sometimes people are creating reasons to be fearful rather than actually seeing the reasons for what they are. Yeah. And I think my concern is that the underlying assumption is that if you feel afraid of something that you are allowed to respond to that fear with violence, which is, uh, I think, at the heart of discussion, a lot of police brutality incidents that an officer in the heat of the moment feels fearful of their life or the lives of someone else. And they are then entrusted to make a decision to respond with violence to negate that fear. That's a fundamental philosophical conversation that should be had of is it okay to act with violence every time you feel afraid? Like there are other, other de-escalation methods that we should be looking at to, to, to negate your fear before just reacting violently. So if part of what we're asking Beth is what are legitimate fears and what are illegitimate fears? Cause once again, I don't want to be dismissive of if there is, if something is fear based, it doesn't automatically mean it's like cowardly or it's not necessarily insult. We're trying to distinguish between, things that we have genuine reason to be concerned about versus things that are irrational. Mm -hmm. But then once we get to the things we have genuine reason to be concerned about or to be fearful of, what does it look like then 
to respond in a way that is rational and not irrational. It seems like with each step, you're trying to ask the question, what is a reasonable emotion? What's a reasonable response? You know, at what point does my responding to something I'm afraid of become a thing that now generates a new kind of fear in people around me? Yeah. Okay. That ought to be taken into consideration. So it's that middle ground to go back to kind of our intro to this show. What does it look like to walk into a discussion where everybody could take a deep breath and go, okay, let's just revisit. This is where reasonable, reasonable people have good reason to land from point to point to point. Yeah. I think the thing that I'm concerned about is like, okay, I mean, you've seen everyone from, you know, George Zimmerman to whoever, you know, use this excuse of I was afraid or I felt afraid for my safety in a moment. And that's our justification for shooting a young black kid who's unarmed because I felt afraid, even though that kid posed no physical threat, especially since you had a weapon and that child did not. But the just the the the, the defense is that, well, I felt afraid. So my concern with that, like you were saying, Anthony, is I also agree there are legitimate things to be afraid of. And I think, you know, we could tie it to the COVID discussion. I think there are genuine safety precautions you can take because there's a reasonable risk to be afraid of. So I don't think it's bad to want to protect your family or to protect your home or your farm with your fox and your chickens. Um to, to want to negate that danger. I don't think that's bad. What where I get really concerned about is when the identified fear is just this sort of amalgated other. And where I see this overlap in conservatism, because that's, that's just to be candid is where a lot of the second amendment action is happening is that that's also a political party where there's a lot of um, fear of the other, of immigrants, of people of color, um, of the LGBTQ plus community, not in all circles, but some. And so if you have a political movement that is creating a lot of fear around people just for who they are, and then you're also building a culture that says it's okay to respond to your fear with violence, then that is why we are seeing the rise of hate crimes. It's why they were seeing the rise of violence against people of color, against immigrants. It's not okay. And like, those are some of the conversations I want to have is like how those different fears feed each other. And what we're saying like is okay to do in response to a fear. Uh, okay. So there is a good distinction. I think what you're describing is a gun culture where, uh, where violence is a first option yes. and response versus it, there would be a very different kind of gun culture where violence was the last option. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. An example of that is if you talk to hardcore gun owners that are very much on the wagon of like, if anybody comes in my home, I'm blasting them. They talk about the fact that you're better off killing that person than you are injuring them. Because if you only injure them, then you're liable to be, to be sued. You open yourself up to stuff like that. Whereas if you kill them, then you don't, there's, there's just your story. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty dark place for yes. human minds to be dwelling. Yeah. But there's a lot of people. And I think more than what we would want that have that understanding and, and think that. And I just, I, that's exactly what we're talking about in terms of fear is like that reaction is really scary. And when we talk about responding to a fearful situation, you know, you gave the George Zimmerman example. I even think about the Ahmaud Arbery incident where these guys were, they were vigilantes and they were saying, I think this person is a threat. There's no reason the first to think option. that. Yes. And the yeah, first he's option just jogging. Right. Yep. And they go, they go and they gun him down. And what we have is, when people can find a reason to be fearful, 
but also have really easy access to firearms, then they can go out and do some of the, commit some of these acts because there's no training that's required to, to coincide with the purchase of the gun. So we have things here in this country, like concealed carry permits. And I don't have one because I don't trust myself. I don't trust myself that I'm not going to shoot myself in the leg accidentally getting in and out of my vehicle while I have a pistol strapped to me uh, because training isn't required. Now, if you told me, Taylor, you need to attend a certain uh, number of hours of training each month in order to uh, keep your your concealed permit active, those are things that I totally, that's a huge responsibility. And so not only would people get more comfortable, I think, around firearms and and handle them better, but you you kind of close the barrier of entry as opposed to like right now you can go buy a gun and you can buy ammunition in the same day and carry it around if you want if it's a long gun as long as it's not concealed and that stuff just doesn't it doesn't add up for me and what you're describing is like it's funny because i then i think with how prevalent gun culture is in our country we're prioritizing some people's fears over others so the fear of having my guns taken away or having any impediment on you know, a right that I hold to be sacred, to be able to own and purchase weapons. You know, how about the way that all, again, like immigrants, people of color, people in marginalized, vulnerable communities feel when these white people show up with weapons, you know, looking to be a vigilante or ask them what they're doing or interrogate them. Even just me as a a privileged white woman, I've covered a lot of political rallies. I've been to rallies where People were open carrying quite a few weapons. People have been aggressive around me with their weapons, you know, and I don't, I feel a certain sense of fear around someone who feels a need to put four guns on to go into a Dunkin's Donut and get a cup of coffee because he's trying to make a point about his gun ownership or his right to be that way. And it's not because of the weapons themselves. It's because of the aura that's emanating of like this sort of aggressiveness in this intimidation but my right to feel safe in that space is not prioritized. The gun owner's right is prioritized. That's his right to go where he wants and he can go into a meeting or whatever it is. So I, I just, some of the conversation about gun culture feels a little hypocritical um, to me in that, in that respect, like we're elevating this one right above everyone else's right to a sense of safety. Um, And to your point, Anthony, we're sort of elevating the power aspect of it without the responsibility. Like what is your responsibility as a goner? Is it make, is it to make everyone around you feel afraid? (laughs) So, so let's take the guy, I think it was last summer. There's a guy in town walking around with long guns downtown. Mm -hmm. From what I understand, just to make a point and make people uncomfortable because he could do it. And I, okay, so he could do it. But I guess the question I had as I heard that story was why? Like, You made people uncomfortable. I don't think you want people over to your side. I don't think you educated people about rights they weren't already aware existed. Like I could go through a whole list of things. Was there something accomplished by that? And all I could think of was that it was someone exercising a right with kind of a devil may care attitude on how the exercise of that right influences people around him. So the same way you can conceal and carry a gun that's hidden fairly tactfully on your person. It doesn't make people that uncomfortable. I'd rather not know. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm sure we, we walk past people all the time for who that is the case. Okay. I'm curious why that isn't sufficient. As you said, why do you need the four of them and the bandolier (laughs) hanging, you know, across the chest? Uh, It it feels like overcompensation um, as if there's something else going on that's going beyond simply um, 
a declaration or an exercising of freedom. And maybe that brings us to the broader philosophical discussion. We talk about so many things in our culture when it comes to exercising of different freedoms in a way that we're, we're asking, where do I have to stop swinging my fist? To use the classic analogy, I can swing my fist until it gets to the point where it hit your nose, then I have to stop. We, we have the freedom to drive cars, but we have uh, stipulations on how that works. We have freedoms to do all kinds of things, but there's another side of a cultural discussion that says, okay, but that freedom is going to bump up against other freedoms and other rights that people have. And so you have to bring in the question of responsibility. Isn't this a tension right now between discussions of uh, religious freedom, especially when it comes to the area of other people's sexual identity? Okay, what we're saying is we've identified two different areas of culture that we as a culture have said have value and they're clashing. So now we're asking, how is this freedom exercised responsibly such that we're keeping the people around us in mind? And, and that's where I feel like the discussion breaks down with a gun culture discussion. It seems as if you ask for others to be considered in the exercise of that freedom. It's lumped in with, why do you want to take my guns away? And that is not what's happening. We're just asking that it be discussed in the same way we discuss everything else in our culture. And I feel like we've had other conversations and other podcasts about like, yeah, to me, this sort of, you know, overreaction or, you know, I guess even just a strong reaction of like, I don't want my guns taken away is not, is, is so conflated with what is actually happening, which is like, you actually, you, you do have some controls on guns right now. If you want a CPL, like you have to go through a process yeah. to get that. You can't have them like in bars around alcohol, you know, like we do have some regulations on guns already. And so some of the conversations that are happening about like universal background checks and uh, waiting periods for guns, which have been shown in studies to be effective because if someone in the heat of the moment is trying to buy a weapon, that's probably not the best frame of mind. Or if they have to wait for seven to 10 days, you might bring crime down. Like just having some measures that are like, no one's uh, taking your gun. They're asking you to wait a week to get your AR-15. Right. <laughs> like, and in the fact that we can't even have those conversations without it becoming they're trying to take our guns away to me that at a certain point, I don't know. I don't think that's a good faith argument at a certain point. I think that's sort of a, a lazy default that even the people who are saying it don't always believe. <laughs> I think it's just a way to shut down the conversation of saying, I'm not going to have any conversation about guns whatsoever. Instead of just like some reasonable concessions that might keep more people safe and allow you to have your, you know, gun ownership. Yes. I think that that's one thing gun owners maybe need to ask themselves is like, what am I, what am I willing to still do to, uh, exercise this freedom of being able to purchase and own guns. So I, I own multiple guns and it's literally been, Oh, do I have two hours because I can run to the store and I can go purchase a gun. They run the background checks. They do all that. Um, for me, I think that even if there was the week waiting period, I would still own the same amount of guns that I do because it's not that big of a deal, that big of a hindrance for me to the point where I'm like, it's not even worth the trouble. I'm just going to go try to illegally purchase a gun. So I don't have to worry about all this. That's not how, that's not how I think. And so I, I think that there are things that we can do and that we can implement where people that really truly appreciate guns and respect them and use them for, for fine purposes are still going to be like, Oh, okay, I can still go get that gun. It's just, there's a couple of extra steps and 
those people that are reacting in the moment or have ill intentions, it might be just enough of a barrier that it prevents them from getting their hands on that weapon. And so I think that there's value to that. And wouldn't it, don't you think it would help you as a gun owner or help other responsible gun owners who aren't trying to make a political point or be aggressive to other people, but just, you know, you own them for the reasons that you own them. It just seems like this segment of the gun owning population that is so hardcore and sort of, you know, obnoxious or not willing to take any conversations or is parading down front street with all their long arms or whatever it is. Doesn't that make all gun owners look bad? Like, isn't that a bad reflection on gun ownership as a whole? And I think, you know, I have this conversation, we've had this conversation before Anthony and I about like Christianity or about being a Democrat politics or whatever it is. Like you need to call out the bad elements of your group or the policies that you find to be ineffective or bad for the cause so that you're not all lumped in together. And I think responsible gun owners need to be more outspoken against the NRA when they disagree with the NRA or advocate for reasonable gun controls. Because what I can tell you is that I think human psychology is a pendulum swing. And if the gun owning crowd keeps you know, swinging way out here with the pendulum and we keep having crazy mass shootings every day. What you could see is maybe someone will take your guns away at some point. Maybe there will be a severe cultural reaction and shut down on weapons because at a certain point, we're just not okay with people being killed like this every single day. And it would be better for the gun owning community to allow moderate concessions that bring you more in the middle than that pendulum swinging crazy other way. So I told something to all three of my boys as they were growing up. I would give them this image about how life works. It would start with like a small circle. You're inside that circle. If you decide to control yourself and make good choices, like nobody else is going to have to interfere with your life. Like if you figure it out perfectly, dude, you'll be good. You won't, of course. So the next circle is your family. So I, I would tell my boys, this is me and your mom. If you don't make the right choices and your stuff starts to implode, it's up to my mom and I to step into your life. And we're going to start putting restrictions on you, putting boundaries in place, et cetera. If you don't listen to us, the next step is going to be, let's say, the school or the church or something like that. Could be your employer if you have a job. All right. You don't have it in yourself. You don't listen to the people close to you. There's going to be a third ring of people that are trying to help you be responsible. If that doesn't work, it's it's the police. That's the next ring. Like... If it gets to that ring, three others have broken down ahead of time and you get to make a choice of how, how far out in this ring do I want people to begin to interact and make my decisions for me? And I think the point you're making, Beth, is an excellent one. And statistically speaking, the vast majority of gun owners are responsible gun owners. Uh, And vast is probably an understatement. Yeah. Um, Almost all. Yeah. Yeah. Almost all. Um, So when we look then at the gun culture, the gun culture is overwhelmingly responsible with their guns. What does it look like? Let's just say for the NRA, the next time there's a mass shooting, rather than simply release a statement that says, well, we're free to own guns, period. I'm paraphrasing. Why not say, man, we are funding uh, an organization. We are starting and funding an organization to help address what is it that's going into fueling people like this? And what can we do next time? Because it breaks our heart to see this happen. I was looking at some research I did a couple of years ago, just about things that correlate with gun violence. And there's a couple of things that stand out. So I want to be clear. These are correlations, not necessarily causations, but when people try to find patterns of what do adult shooters 
have in common. There's a couple of things they note. For number one, it's mostly men. So first of all, strong correlation between youth violence and absentee fathers. All right. So a great argument to make is that if you want to be able to experience the freedom of gun ownership, let's talk about what it looks like to help strengthen families and help to build connections with fathers and sons. And that could be uh, in families, through civic organizations, through government policies, you name it. You could take your family out shooting. That's right. Um, (laughs) Yeah, good one. Uh, The second thing would be this um, strong correlation between poverty and violence of all kinds. And there's lots of discussion about why that is, because obviously just because someone lives in poverty doesn't mean they're going to be violent. But if someone is violent, there's often a correlation with poverty. It seems to be a sense of desperation. Um, Once again, a number of reasons for that. A third key one is alcohol use. Excessive alcohol use correlates very strongly with violence committed with guns. And the last thing is childhood abuse, childhood trauma. One psychologist said, untreated, traumatized children inhabit the bodies of often very scary men. And so I wonder what it's what it looks like, because my assumption is that guns are here to stay in the United States. I, I think that cat's out of the bag. What does it look like for everyone, but especially gun owners and the organizations that they're a part of, to go, okay, we too want to see all these things drop. We are investing heavily in a, in looking at these correlative issues, trying to figure out what it looks like to build the kind of people with whom, for whom we do not have to be worried when they have a weapon in their hands. Yeah. And I think, you know, this might be a good point to just briefly talk about the NRA because I have a lot of problems with, with how the NRA operates as an organization. I know Taylor, you and I were talking, we were talking just before the show about Wayne and all of the sort of scandals of the- You're on a first name basis? Yeah, yeah. Wayne and I hang out. Um, <laughs> of the NRA, NRA leadership. And I think you might know a little bit more that, about that. So I can let you talk about that and sort of the hypocrisy of that. But for me, like what I dislike about the NRA is exactly what you just said, Anthony. Like they could be having such different messaging. They could be so instrumental in advocating for gun ownership, but safe gun ownership. Um, They could be a leader in that space. And instead, the entire message is just as many and as much guns as we can have all the time, regardless of the circumstances. So one of the things I wanted to mention that has driven me bonkers for years as a journalist uh, is that the NRA has been able to shut down scientific studies of gun violence. Anytime you're going to limit the conversation makes me think you can't stand on the strength of your arguments. So I'm going to have a problem with that. Like you not even allowing research to happen. So the NRA was very effective in getting congressional limitations put on funding, going to the CDC to study gun violence for 25 years. I want you to keep going, but also isn't that kind of following in the footsteps of the tobacco industry too? Like a lot of yes. the same strategies. Yes. And obviously huge. And this is, uh, would be my separate side argument for campaign finance reform, <laughs> but yes, huge amounts of lobby money, obviously coming from the NRA. Uh, so they were able to shut that down. This has just been lifted. So there's a New York times article just in the last few weeks where the CDC is starting to fund gun violence studies for the first time in 25 years. Um, And they were talking about what I'm interested in this. I think the three of us in our first podcast, we were talking about the insurrection and politics. We were talking about how we wished there were more sort of neutral think tanks where like a really complicated issue like border security, like 
I don't want to just think what I think about that. I would be really interested in real research, real conversations. Maybe there's some things I'm wrong about assuming about immigration, the border, but like, let's have real studies about this. And this is what I think would be interesting with gun violence. So there are organizations who are starting to study it. And in this New York times article, they were talking about some statistics and things they've already found in other countries. So they have found, for example, expanding background checks makes a difference. Waiting periods for gun purchases reduce both suicides and violent crimes because of that sort of impulse nature of those crimes. What I thought was interesting, my assumption, I would like to have an assault weapon ban. They found that that's not always effective in bringing down mass shootings. I'm open to changing my mind on that. What I really would love to see is just the science and being able to have discussions in science. So I feel grateful that the CDC is finally able to study this. I think we should understand what causes someone to become a mass shooter. What are warning signs we can look for? What are reasonable policy checks and balances we can put in place? But just having this lockdown on research and conversation for 25 years has been a big part of the problem, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's exactly why I don't contribute to something like the NRA, because to me, I just don't see... Maybe I'm not passionate enough about it. I understand that if the NRA wasn't in existence, we might very well have a, a much different um, like amount of guns that are circulating in the country. I know that they have a stranglehold on the conservative vote in a lot of ways, which is leading to many of the freedoms that gun owners can practice, which is just it's super, super easy to access a gun and to purchase a gun in this country compared to other places. And I'm sure that that is not only due to the, the Second Amendment, but the NRA's ability to kind of uh, manipulate and shape this conversation and convince people that I'm needed to protect your rights uh, to purchase a gun and to exercise your second amendment. Um, I don't depend on them and I don't even really find them to be um, that admirable. I mean, there were examples of the CEO of the NRA that was improperly using funds. That's and, Wayne. Yes. Wayne, your friend, Wayne, <laughs> um, to, to, take like lavish trips and, and really just to me that that's just how you lose. I guess if I were to be considered maybe someone in the middle where, Hey Taylor, are you interested in contributing to the NRA and signing up for a monthly fee or whatever to, to, so that we can ensure that you can always practice your exercise, your second amendment rights. I'm not because there was so much hypocrisy with that. And why would I trust an entity like that? That isn't, um, that it continues to be represented through improper use of funds. Like to me, that is just a full stop, no go. And I just, it's not something that I feel like I feel like I need. So in one sense, I'm a gun owner. I have that in, in common with people that contribute and pay the NRA. But in the other sense, like, I feel like personally, I would be just as well off without that entity. Do you feel like totally comfortable? Like I, it's one of the reasons I wonder about the NRA, the wisdom of having the NRA be like this monolithic entity is because there probably is diversity of thought within the gun ownership community, just like you're sharing right now. And I wonder how comfortable gun owners feel about publicly expressing more nuanced views of gun ownership than just don't touch my guns, <laughs> because it seems like then maybe your own community might not be receptive to that messaging, or maybe you don't feel comfortable having that conversation publicly because there's only one narrative about gun ownership right now. Gun owners, maybe in general, and you can walk a quarter mile down the street that I live on and you can, it can become abundantly clear how some people feel about their guns. I mean, it's God, guns, and country. And sometimes they put God in the front, but you know, that's actually third on the <laughs> list. Um, but I think that people are 
like with anything, much more reasonable than you would be led to believe based on their kind of public stances of stuff. And so I think that these conversations can happen, but everybody is so fearful of this slippery slope. Like, oh, if they start limiting me in this area, then, you know, who knows? By the time my grandkids come around, guns might be banned. And for me, I'm like, like you had alluded to earlier, there's going to be, if things continue in this way, there's going to be an equal and opposite reaction. And that's less a slippery slope and more of like falling off a cliff. And that's why I think it's important now to engage in these types of conversations, because then you actually get a say in how this is going to go, as opposed to just deny, deny, deny before somebody else comes along and can make just a sweeping change as a reaction to your lack of willingness to, to communicate and participate in these conversations. One thing that I thought would be as helpful that was from this New York Times article was that the, they, the expert that's talking in the article who is a PhD in psychology was making a distinction and noted that there's at least five different gun violence problems in the country. There's mass shootings, there's suicides, there's urban gun violence, which mostly affects minority young men. There are family shootings and there are police shootings. Each of those have different risk factors. They have different motives and they often involve different firearms. So what I'm excited about the CDC funding finally being released to study some of these issues is that there might be different contextual policies based on each of those scenarios. We might find there are certain red flags for family violence that aren't really the same for mass shootings. And so there's a different way to tactically address that than to address a mass shooting issue. Right now, I think we're all understandably feeling some trauma and concern about gun violence because we see a mass shooting in the news every day. But we're also collectively being traumatized by police brutality as a country and the race issues that that's bringing up. Certainly, if you're an individual in a family that has experienced a suicide or gun violence or homicide, you have that trauma. They're different traumas. We're all talking about the same weapon. But even in that, they're saying they're, you know, different firearms are typically involved in different types of crimes. So that's why I just think it's helpful to have those conversations so that it is nuanced. So you can go off the science and it's not just let's get rid of all AR-15s because people are shooting people in malls. Like maybe that's not the solution, but like, let's have a conversation about it. So today we are drinking a CEO stout from Right Brain Brewery. Uh, I picked this beer and I picked it for a couple of reasons. The day that we're recording today here in Michigan is very wintry and terrible <laughs> weather outside. <laughs> and I had thought we were in spring season, but winter for me, I always want to have a stout. Um, this stout from Right Brain, which is here in Traverse City, uh, also has some coffee in it. So I wanted to be a little alert for yeah. the show today because we're yeah. dealing with yeah. a heavy subject matter. So the description for the CEO stout is that the CEO actually stands for chocolate, espresso, and oatmeal, which are three elements that are in the beer. It says it combines to form an American style stout that is dark bodied and complex, yet surprisingly sessionable. And that was the only things I chose is a lot of times stouts, you get into that like eight, nine, 10% ABV. And then we're like slurring by the end of the podcast. <laughs> and this one is a 5.8. So it's like in that nice, just like yeah. easy drinking range, which is pretty unusual for a stout. And they clarify, it's not just made with coffee beans, Beth. It's made with real coffee beans. Ooh. So I love better that. than the fake coffee bean stouts that are <laughs> yeah, out there. Yeah. And you're so right to to make it weather dependent, but I cannot wait till the day where we can just sip strawberry daiquiris because it's 85 degrees out. <laughs> See, we'll get there. Oh, I'm, I'm excited for that too. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, thank you, Right Brain, for the CEO stout. I think those kind of studies will be important because 
those distinctions will matter in terms of the kind of reasonable policy you could set where you're not undermining someone's right, but you are organizing the exercise of that right in a way that seems appropriate. That's, yeah. that's consistent with everything we do. Maybe exploring the term like good guy with a gun. We hear that all the time about, you know, we just, we need more good guys with guns to, to prevent some of these things. And I kind of look at it as like, as much as I don't believe that, because we see this all the time with these mass shootings, like those good guys with the guns really are not that effective. Maybe in, in certain cases, like I think there was a shooting in Texas, maybe a couple of years ago where someone did chase the shooter down. Yeah. You do um, find the occasional story. Occasional. Yep. Yes. Um, but not, not to the level that I think good guys with guns would have you believe. They're much more likely good guys with gun to accidentally shoot themselves yes. or to have someone find their gun and accidentally shoot themselves. Or, or dare I say, it's often a guy with a gun who thinks of himself as good. Ooh, which is an important yes, distinction. And that's, that's why this is such a complicated thing because in, in some ways we think, oh, well, we need more good guys with guns to have access to to guns and good, good guys should be able to have kind of this unlimited access to, to weapons to a certain extent. But by going through with that, you're, you're opening up more avenues for bad guys or, or people that are ill suited to, to have the responsibility of a gun. You're making it easier for them simultaneously to obtain the same thing. I will bet you each $10. Well, $5 each total of 10. That Ahmad Arbery's shooters thought of themselves as good guys with a gun. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's my dilemma with that phrase is, I, do you mean good aim? Do you mean you went through proper training on how to fire a, hold a firearm while you fire it? That doesn't make you good. Or you just made a spontaneous extrajudicial decision on the street to execute some sort of legal justice that you're not qualified to make. Yeah. Like I get like an emergency situation, you might try to de-arm or stop someone from committing violence. Like we have some flexibility within the law to act in an emergency type of way. But there's like what you said of someone who thinks of themselves as good is such an important distinction because I don't, and this is my more murky morality than probably the two of you have as Christians, but I don't really think of all people as being all good or all bad. <laughs> and so like, I even sometimes have felt an impetus to maybe want to own a gun in our home because I'm, I feel afraid. So let's, you know, that, that discussion of the culture. And I'm like, well, maybe if I have all these crazy people around me with guns, like I need a gun. Like it's very easy to fall into that. Like I have to protect myself because I don't want to be the last person on earth that doesn't have a gun and everyone's going nuts around me. I don't want to fall into that mentality because one, I don't want to make a fear-based decision. If I bought a gun, I want it to be for the right reasons for me and my household. But two, I, I don't think I'm always a good person. I'm capable of getting drunk. I'm capable of getting angry. I'm capable of acting spontaneously or impulsively when I've been hurt or betrayed. And all people are, which is my problem. I think the studies do show worldwide that the less gun ownership you have in a country, the less gun violence you're going to have because people are flawed and they will make flawed decisions. And when they have access to weapons, those decisions will be amplified. So that the good guy with a gun might make the good, it might make a genuinely good decision 99.5% of the time, but it's that 0.5%. That's the problem because that can be a life ending problem. Yeah. And I think we're just talking statistically without actually citing statistics. When you have as many guns as we have in the United States that are circulating around that inflates these numbers. And so it's just, it's one of those things that I think we have to reckon with where 
hey, if we're going to have, I think it's 120 guns to every 100 people in this country, we have over 300 million guns in circulation right now, of which we surpassed sales, I think last July by like 3 million due to the pandemic, people were getting a little, little kooky and buying up more guns. <laughs> and these are all things, if, if that's going to happen, then we need to, to be ready to understand, I think, and discuss the implications of that because it's easy to get a gun. I've done it many times. And to be honest, I, I, I believe it's, it's too easy. Is it kind of nice? Because sure. I'm a, I'm a good guy with a gun. I can tell myself that. So it's kind of cool to just be able to take a couple hours out of my afternoon and go purchase a new gun. But do I, am I comfortable with the fact that it's that easy for someone else that isn't as, um, uh, suitable for gun ownership as I am. I'm not comfortable with that. Okay. So I want to come back just a little bit to this idea of good guy again, <laughs> cause I, <laughs> I, I'm always conscious when I say things, I'm like, oh, I could have said that better. Um, one thing I would note is I think most people, when they say that, what they mean is there is someone who is committing an evil act and there is another person who wants to stop that evil act. And that's sufficient for in the moment to call them a good guy with a gun. Okay. I get that. I just think it's only scratching the surface of the discussion. Let me give you one example of what I think you have to have in place it's someone who is willing to carry a gun with them and potentially use it to informally stop something bad from happening. What is more valuable, people or things? In other words, are you willing to use your gun to kill someone who was not harming other people, but was say stealing? That was the Ahmad Arbery thing. They thought he was stealing and they were willing to kill him because he took things. Okay, nope. You There has to be some clarity in your mind that lives of people are more valuable than the things that they might be holding in their hands. But that type of thing is, I think it would be interesting for us three to have a discussion about what are kind of the kind of mindsets that perhaps we as a culture can agree, man, we want to keep bringing these things home. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking as we were talking of, um, we brought up Patrick Swayze early on. So let's go with another Patrick Swayze movie, <laughs> Roadhouse. And Love so, Roadhouse. <laughs> so, so Patrick good. Swayze is a lethal weapon in Roadhouse, right? <laughs> like his fists are registered with the government, I think. <laughs> But one of the things that stands out about him, at least early on in the movie, is that violence is the last resort. He's a bouncer. The last thing he wants to do is get in a fight. Like the fight you win is the one that you walk away from without fighting. So early on in the movie, there's a couple guys brawling. They, he stops and they want to fight him inside the bar. He says, I'll see you guys outside. They go bailing outside. Then he just stays inside and there's no fight. Be nice. Oh, That's be nice. Thing. Yeah. Be nice. <laughs> when do we stop? I'll tell you. Such a good line. <laughs> But I, I think that's another mindset that you want to have in a quote unquote good guy is, all right, um, I will exhaust everything else before it gets to the point where I am going to consider using violence in a, especially in a way that might take someone's life. Uh, all of these, I'm, there's this punch list now running through my head. And I think that's probably a different discussion and a different show, but those are the kinds of things that I wish we as a culture could have more time and someone like the NRA going, all right, members, this is what makes you a member in good standing. Mm, yeah, because I think there is a fundal, fundamental like underlying thing that we're talking about here, which is like the preciousness of human life. And so if it becomes sort of easy to justify in your mind the taking of human life for very minimal causes like that is a that is a whole cultural problem that needs to be thought about there. And I think like just knowing that we're probably getting close to wrapping up. Like that's one of the things that I 
I think I would, you know, think about if I were to buy guns and I, I think it's reasonable to ask owners to ask, like, what is your motivation for owning guns? Like, are they utilitarian? Are they hunting? Are they protecting your home? And you don't have to, yes, you have the right to not have to justify yourself to everyone, but like maybe know that for yourself, know why you have them, know why you want them. Um, how are you keeping them safe? How are you keeping other people safe? And when are you willing to use them outside of those purposes? So if you think you're going to hurt or kill another human being, you better have had some real come to Jesus conversations with yourself about that. It can't just be someone shut up on my lawn and I don't like the way they look. So stand your ground. Like I'm going to protect my home. And like what you said, Anthony, like it can't just be someone's black and looks like they're, you know, hijacking a car. So I'm going to shoot them without asking questions and ask the questions later. Like the life's not worth, I mean, the car's not worth the life. And that's, yeah. I think why we're having this national outrage about police brutality, because it seems to be like this sort of minimization of what it means to take a human life and when that is justified. And I, I think it happens a lot more often than I'm comfortable with. And I would really love to see a form of gun ownership. I know many people are these types of gun owners, but I'd like to see the conversation become more forefront in the country of these guns in the taking of human life are a very last resort. They're not, I feel afraid. I feel a little bit willy. I want to show someone I'm tough. Like it has to be like, this is a very, very serious thing, whether you're a police officer or a homeowner. <laughs> and I don't feel like that's the cultural conversation right now, which is why gun ownership bothers me. Yeah. I'll give a little story how I kind of base my view of gun ownership off of. This was a, a little microcosm, an example. I used to work at a brain injury rehab center and people could the patients that were there, they, they lived there in that facility and they could get very volatile oftentimes because they had suffered traumatic brain injuries, or maybe they were diagnosed with schizophrenia and they would get set off at over very different things. And sometimes it was very erratic. Like you, you were not expecting it at all. And now all of a sudden one of these patients is swinging at you or trying to hurt you or trying to hurt themselves. And it became really clear to me, I was working there as a 19 year old that some people are suited for this job of, of being a, a rehabilitation aid and other people are not. We were trained uh, to physically restrain these patients in order to keep them from hurting other patients, themselves or us. And it did not take long, maybe a week or two to find the people that were more willing to utilize their physical restraints. You could tell it was just their way of exercising some type of power. Mm -hmm. And I think you, we can see that with gun owners as well, but there was this the situation where this very large patient who we've had issues with in the past in terms of him physically lashing out had just received word that he was going to have to remain in the facility. It wouldn't be able to go back home. Like he was hoping his, his uh, meeting with the doctor didn't go well. So he broke a window and was attempting to slash at us with glass. Well, once he broke the window, we were able to separate him from the, the glass and just kind of have him in a corner. The staff member that I was cornering him with, was very willing to put this person on the floor and kind of twist him up until we could get a shot in his arm to calm him down. And I was thinking to myself, like, not much good is going to come out of that. We're actually going to risk our health more so by doing that than we would if we just talk this person down. Mm -hmm. And I actually kicked that staff member out and said, go, you go get the pills, get his pills. I'm going to talk to him. 
And we had this discussion, a very tense discussion over the course of probably 10 minutes where I'm wondering, is this person that's bigger than me going to make a rush for these shards of glass again? Um, or how is this going to turn up? And really what it showed me is that different people are, are able to handle situations differently. And that's also what adds to the complexity of this conversation. There's nothing more serious, I don't think, than being in a, a situation where a gun is present, whether you're the one that's using it or something is, it's being used in your environment. And that can cause a lot of discombobulation. It can cause emotion. And some people can thrive in that environment. We think about professionals that may be in the military. Um, and then other people are just kind of stunned by that. And then other people go the opposite direction. They're like, bring it on. I, I've been kind of waiting for this. And we have, to, we have to understand that there are people all across the spectrum that own guns, that are participating in that culture. And that's the whole reason we're having this conversation is because if it was only about good guys with guns, there wouldn't be any statistics to pour over. Mm -hmm. It would be fine. Mm -hmm. But much like the story that I had shared, some people are suited to that environment and others have very selfish motives. And that's why we're talking, I think. And I just wonder if you could hypothetically compare all the situations in which someone had access to a gun or didn't have access to a gun, like in your situation that you're describing, if an orderly or an aide had a weapon in that situation, you know, with a large person who might have a shard of broken glass and be threatening, like how many times that might lead to a gun death versus how many times someone might be dead without the gun there. It's, there's certainly situations where it could be that someone is killed because a gun wasn't there to protect themselves. Right. And I'm not doubting that that doesn't happen. My feeling though, is if you had to deescalate and you didn't have a gun at the ready, what would you do otherwise? And like, that's a question I just, I think that's what's at the heart of the defund the police movement. I hate that phrase. I think it's terrible branding, but I think that's like what the conversation is, is like, what are the other options besides drawing your weapon? Because if you sometimes had to really enter into that de-escalation in those conversations and do what you were doing, which is trying to talk someone down off a ledge. I, I just feel like the amount of times that that would lead to a more positive outcome than a weapon being present in an emotionally volatile charge situation where people have to make split second decisions is. Are you suggesting dangerous. that having a weapon present does not make us desperate enough to find a peaceful solution at all costs. Thanks for saying that more articulately than I did. Yes. No. I, and I think that is the point <laughs> I agree of with the, that. Yes. let's call it the divert the police funds movement. Yes. Um, and I think, I think Taylor, what you just described is the idea behind that, that you're trying to get people to go into situations that formerly police were going into, but they weren't trained in mental health issues like you just described, but you're trying to get people in these situations who can de-escalate these things simply because they have the training. It's not an insult to the policeman. I think we've just been asking law enforcement to do more than they've been trained to do. And it's just an attempt to get the properly trained people into the right spots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that's, I mean, if we keep trying to find comparisons, like we saw what happened with Derek Chauvin. And so in my example that I gave, we were not using guns, but our version of a gun would have been our ability to physically restrain someone. And that can cause some pain. You're having to twist them in certain directions. And so I was able to remove, let's put in quotes and the Derek Chauvin, the person who was wanting that contact and was looking for any excuse to use that. 
And in a lot of other scenarios, that is a gun rather than just some physical restraint. And I had dropped this line in a podcast, Anthony and I had did before. Are you quoting yourself? I'm quoting myself, (laughs) uh, a very wise man, (laughs) Um, that we seem to have a lot of people that um, are more willing to kill for something than they are to die for something. Like the person, the people that uh, murdered Ahmaud Arbery, they were not willing to die. They certainly weren't. They knew he wasn't armed. They knew that right away. He was wearing a white t-shirt and shorts and he was going for a jog. So they were, but they were more than willing to kill. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe to wrap up, it's such a complex conversation. I, I enjoyed hearing both of your perspectives on it. It's not like, obviously it can be solved overnight. I think what I, what I'm seeking having this conversation going forward with other people is just like just a openness and a willingness to have it. Like, cause right now it just feels like there's the, the walls and the emotional defensiveness are so strong around this topic and the sort of, um, talking points have become so ingrained and cemented that it's really hard to like have some flow of conversation and some back and forth and some give and take. And that's what I would just love to see from gun owners. I would just love to see some movement. I would like to see those who I know are out there. I'm talking about the majority being responsible gun owners. Like, please be more vocal about that. Like engage in these discussions and don't just let like the NRA be the voice that's speaking for all gun owners, because I think we could all benefit from having some more nuance across the spectrum in the conversation. 100%. I agree. You're going to do yourself. And I guess the people that you might uh, represent more of a favor by being willing to have these conversations. Trust me, I get the NRA advertisements that come across my YouTube channel because I look up certain videos on how to like shoot properly and, and hunting strategies and stuff. So I get that. And they're laughable. Are, are you ready and prepared for Joe Biden to come and personally remove the weapons? And that's coming from the NRA. And so are you the Taylor? Prop- <laughs> I told you already. But I don't feel comfortable having an entity like that represent me when I know it's much more complex than just the things they're willing to, to present. Well, I feel like you guys summoned, see, I can't even do it. I wasn't prepared <laughs> to. You guys summarize this all pretty well. And I just enjoy talking to you because you're both straight shooters. <laughs> Can you like do like a, a sound effect? <laughs> we never get out of here in time for the, uh, for there not to be a joke like that. A little pun. 